0: Go! Sniper arrow on the guard. It strikes true, the guard drops. I move to the doorway. Detect
1: traps. None detected. I enter.
2: Left flank. Right!
1: One hobgoblin facing east. Backstab. Double damage. Crickle hit, he's dead. Footsteps behind the door to the north.
2: I notch two arrows.
1: I climb the walls to get above the door. Five goblins enter from the north. I fire! Both arrows hit. Cleave! You kill one and wound another. I drop on the last one and grapple. You got a hold of him. This one's for Crouton. With his dying breath, he utters the Dark Lord!
2: We'll
0: kill you all. Wait, these things can talk? I want two taken alive. I want to try something. Welcome to Let's Roll, the show where we discuss various role-playing games with guests and fellow tabletop gamers. This is Siskoid, and this episode continues our discussion of Shift World, our GURPS-fueled campaign that tries to use as many sourcebooks and settings as possible. We've already talked about Old West, Auto Duel, Mars, and Ice Age, and today we're talking about GURPS Mecha, and in parallel, we'll also talk about other mech-related RPGs, and of course, I've invited the same two players to talk about that Phase of the story. Uh, with me, Daniel Putwillet. Notice me, Senpai. And Alexandre Beber or Beb Eber. Hey guys. You may remember them if you've been following this saga. Uh, they are Ace and Willie J. Spade in the game. And let's talk a little bit about. Shift World, if this is the first time you hear about this, of course, there's been many chapters and just a way to talk about different GURPS books, really. It's a game where the characters, every so often, go through a shift and the universe completely changes, the setting completely changes, and so do they, but they remember the other world and their other lives, so they have two sets of memories, three sets of memories, four sets of memories, whereas other characters in the game don't. They don't know what's going on. They don't realize that anything's changed. So it was always going to be this evolving mystery of what is really happening with our three brothers. And then maybe their parents were also shifters and maybe their arch enemy is also a shifter. And so it went. This is a game that we played some 20 years ago and then picked back up last year. And, uh, well, we actually finished it last week as the podcast flies as the podcast records so how are you feeling about this guys
1: where to start what an end what a close we, we finally had closure that that's the first thing that's one thing we needed with this story 20 something years later <laughs> but still it was pretty nice to see it through let's say that but it's bittersweet though because now we have to say goodbye to those characters and move forward
2: for me i feel all of the emotions about the end of this Definitely for me, 20 years ago when we stopped, I felt dissatisfied about that because, I mean, every RPG, it's so common for RPGs to start and never finish, right? So, like, you're used to that idea for any RPG and you always kind of expect it. But for Shift World, I was particularly disappointed because it was by far my favorite RPG that I had played. And um, I was really hoping we would get to reunite someday and finish it. And I kind of uh, lost hope for that idea but then we did this year and it was amazing i would say even the sessions we did this year were even better than what we did originally and so i'm really glad that we got to keep going with that and uh, finally conclude it or did we yeah or, or did we
1: <laughs> and, and if i may add today's episode is kind of um ironic in a way because you you will learn that uh, my character actually had to leave the game leave the the universe for a while so so you know having the whole story wrapped up now but at this moment when we were playing Mecha that I kind of knew it was my uh, last sessions with you guys it also was the same feeling of you know bittersweetness and kind of a you know dealing with um you know, parting away with the team. This is one thing I remember from uh, these sessions.
0: And, and yeah, I mean, the reason we stopped is not because, for, it's, I mean, it's it's just logistics, right? Yeah. Back in the early 2000s, there was really no good way to play online. And uh, first, Baba left for <laughs> other pastures, other jobs in other towns. And then, you know, within the year, it was Put's turn to do the same. So mm-hmm. th- that's how the game collapsed.
2: Like a lot of people will say like strength or charisma are the most important attributes in an RPG, but really it's availability.
1: Yeah.
2: <laughs> so true.
0: So uh, let's pick this back up. Last time we talked about GURPS Ice Age and how to survive in games, very low tech. Well, you guys were cavemen fighting your arch enemy in that and suddenly shift. <laughs> You know, you find yourself in the cockpits of a couple of giant robots. Definitely the most memorable shift. I had in my
2: notes, is this the best realized shift we ever did? Was this the first time that we rolled for... Shifting sickness? No, because uh, if you remember
0: the first, the very first shift, our other player, etienne who played Johnny, the older brother, All right. uh, crashed himself into a tree. Right, so he he failed. But in this case, it was such a gap. The role was so hard, much harder, because you went from cavemen who couldn't count more numbers than you had fingers, and suddenly you find yourself in you know super high tech anime type situation you're still the way the shift shifts sickness as you call it works the characters still have the brain of the, for the original world but they are in a in this other circumstance. So until they catch up, there are a number of rounds before they catch up. So I remember a lot of defecating in your cockpit <laughs> as you
2: thought you were cavemen. It was just pure terror <laughs> because our characters could not understand what was happening. Right. Like they, they thought they were cavemen, but they were in these big fighting robots <laughs> and like, as though they got eaten by the dinosaurs or something. But yeah, there was defecating. That was the, the most memorable of all ship sickness consequences we've had to go through.
1: Yeah, definitely. It was um, unpleasant. I'm surprised at you guys,
0: because we had another player who eventually joined this game, actually, who was a, a master of defecating in games, defecating on villains, or de- I, I don't know, he, still in his anal phase, but he, he was not in the group yet, so this defecation just came naturally.
2: I think it came from you, actually, to be honest. We yeah. just said, yeah, we miserably failed this role, then you said, you guys are terrified, screaming, and your characters are defecating all over the cockpit.
0: Yeah, yeah, my own twisted sense of humor. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: I can be scatological. Signs that you were you were feeling a a void that needed to be filled by this future player that will be coming.
1: And (laughs) in a way, it was anime-ish to see like characters like peeing themselves. It happens sometimes.
2: I I
0: don't watch enough anime to know, but we'll talk about that. We'll talk about our anime roots, because it is a, a strong part of what we did with GURPS Mecca. Let's talk a little, a little bit about the source book. GURPS Mecca was written by David Pulver, one of the main GURPS designers, and it was published by Steve Jackson Games, of course, in 1997. Pulver had, in fact, been responsible for the very chunky GURPS robots in 95 and GURPS vehicles in 96, and Mecha used the same design rules. I like Rick Swan's review of the book in uh, Dragon Magazine, where he said, Clearly, this is best suited for anime fans who aced algebra. (laughs) In any case, the book not only tells you how to build your own Mecha, it also discusses how to integrate Mecha into your game world, the types of characters suitable for such a thing, Appropriate combat rules, mech examples, and a quick setting to tap into, which is called Cybermech Damocles, which is about a secret agency fighting alien invaders. Because, of course. So, uh, let's talk about playing anime. There was preparation for this, maybe, can I say, our entire lives in a way, but (laughs) also in in time for the game?
1: Well, I remember clearly when it was coming up, seeing Itzian put nerdgasm all over the place because you know of all of us probably those two uh I remember back in the day Etienne was even doing his own subtitles on some anime stuff. That's Uh, true. (laughs) So 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 yeah. So they were ecstatic about it. And for me uh, well, my background into anime was not that complete. You know, uh, I grew up with uh, Grandizer or Goldarach in French. That was something for me, or even Voltron, but that was the most of it. I saw some other later in my life, but that was my base. So I was excited, but not as excited as the other two.
2: Fair? See, now I'm embarrassed. Because Beba has sold me as this huge anime geek, uh, whereas lately in my life I've been telling everybody that I really don't like anime. <laughs> but back then, it's true that I definitely was a big fan of it. Uh, through Etienne, actually. like He's the one who showed me anime and got me into it. So uh, yeah, I was definitely excited. I remember the reveal because like, for listeners, so you have to imagine you're around the table and Mike, who is GM, has his... Um, GM screen in front of him and whenever It comes a time to reveal that we've shifted He always slowly pans The new source book From behind the GM screen To show what oh, it's going yeah. to be And we got very excited When we saw uh, Gerps Mecca Because uh, this was one of the Source books where because Mike would Ask us in advance like what Like once we knew we were shifting, he would ask us, like, what kind of settings would you like to try as players? And this was one that both Etienne and I had mentioned. So we were waiting for this to come up and we got very excited.
1: Suddenly we come from Ice Age and we are in like an Evangelion type of environment. It was just crazy. I I smelled happiness, actually. And we transferred and when we shifted. Well, we smelled other thing as our character, but still.
0: Well, I, I do remember being introduced to Evangelion. I think it's a hard G. Uh, yeah. Evangelion in, uh, by Etienne, of course. But also, it was we were not playing Evangelion. No. <laughs> that is just, it's really out there, you know. It couldn't be. Uh, it wasn't that screwed up. I really think that I used the setting from the book. There's already a setting there about aliens. They're using the moon as a base you're driving robots. They're sending down evil robots. You know stuff like that. To me, the inspiration was, except for some plot details, Galdrak or uh, UFO Robo Grandizer, which Americans are always telling me that thing because for them it's it was a minor show, but for yeah. us it was the whole of anime growing up. It was the biggest thing. You know, like pop stars would would do records uh, with, with the music. Galdrak is a thing that it's kind of the thing where nobody in French Canada doesn't know what it is of our generation, at least, but even later generations. It was on TV for a long time, but it had, it had a lot of those things. The, the vegans were on the moon and they were sending down these robots. And there was a, Evangelion element in the sense that, in French at least, the evil robots were called called Golgots, which is obviously named after Golgotha, the hill on which Christ was crucified. So there's also another Christian thing going on there, just like in Evangelion. You know, we were also looking at Robotech and Macross, which is kind of the same thing. Voltron, you know, I've always loved Mechagodzilla. I... I got, I, I got to count that. But but I was not necessarily a big. Ba- I watched anime. I, I watched anime films, but I wouldn't call myself any kind of expert. So I was going by the feeling of the... But I remember we actually went, with Etienne at least, we went to the to Blockbuster, as that was still a thing. Ah, good old days. Yeah, and we just rented things with giant robots in them, sight unseen, like we don't know what this is, and watched a few episodes of each just as source material and this is something that we you know that i actually do by myself normally when we're going to undertake a game and a genre then i I just want to watch a few examples of that genre you know just to get the mood get the feeling and maybe steal some ideas
2: Mm -hmm. and i think this is the only shift where we did it all together i do remember we all went to etienne's house and like we each picked like one anime that we really liked and that we hope this shift would resemble. I remember picking Macross Plus and specifically looking just at like the scenes where the mechs are fighting and transforming from, like, planes to robots to planes to robots and, like, all the missiles flying all over the place. And, yeah, I wanted it to be really high adrenaline. So I remember we had a little viewing party of our favorite animes. And I don't think we we did that for any other shifts.
1: I don't know if I'm going to insult somebody there, but is Transformers counts as anime? I
2: I don't know, Ah. but it it is giant
0: robots. And the robots in... GURPS Mecca, the example ones, did have transforming ability, you know? Uh, so, so Puts could turn also into a plane and, and yours turns into a van or something. So there, there was, like, turning into different vehicles as well because I think Pulver, writing this, was at the same time combining his work on GURPS robots and GURPS vehicles and using those rules sort of testing those rules. Like, how can I make a... Use the rules that I've created, which are very mathematical and real-world and simulationist, you know, make something that turns into other vehicles as well. So that that was sort of his shtick there in GURPS Mecca. It's something that's very hard to reproduce for certain players. I would not have tried to make my own robots because it was a limited engagement. We weren't gonna... So we used the robots in there. Uh, there were just enough examples, you know. But I would not have sat there with a calculator and built my own physics-appropriate robot. Uh, (laughs) I would not have done that.
1: We would have never survived.
0: Not me, but I would have let you fiddle with it if it were, you know, like, okay, we're going to play this for a year. It's just we knew that the shift was only in the last few weeks, and uh, I, I don't like to, to invest too much time in character or equipment, in this case, creation.
2: Well, I think that's like our approach with GURPS in general, not just with vehicle rules, but just GURPS in general has so many details and rules that we end up like throwing out a lot and just fudging a lot of stuff.
0: Yeah, just let's get on with it. You no, know, no, What we yeah. want to do is play.
2: Yeah, exactly.
0: I know there's a lot of joy in building something and creating a character, but in our case, it was just like, let's get through this, especially considering that Beba was on his last legs, <laughs> so to speak. Yeah. And uh, we just, let's play before he leaves, you know, let's let's give him as much as we can.
1: And and still, we were character-driven players, so it was not that important to go into technicalities.
0: Yeah, and I've got uh, some notes about that. but But to get back to the anime element... I think that one of the things that made this fun, we weren't just doing straight mech stuff. You know, there are some very military games out there, like Mech Warrior, or at least that's what it seems to me. It's more of a war game almost, where the characters are less anime. It's not about anime, it's like guys in tanks, and just the tanks happen to walk around. What we got and tried to do is the feeling where, you know, like we did like the big drops of sweat and the pulsing veins and all of this Uh, The stuff that you see
2: on, that you associate with Sailor Moon, for example. Right. The nosebleeds when you see an attractive girl. Yeah.
1: The name calling of the shot you're about to do to the uh, opponent.
2: That's true. We did do that. We would name our special attacks and yell them out. Yeah. As far as the Mecca itself, so, so we had
0: all of this character-driven stuff, you know, it's like the setting has these shape-shifting aliens, and, it, you know, it's got it's got like a world, like they've infiltrated, they're really acting like mafiosos, which is the thing that is different here, that I think is, is kind of clever from the setting that they give in the book. It's not a military organization that's fighting your guys, they're, they're actually gangsters who are abusing Earth, like, Earth is protected under treaty because it is so low-tech, comparatively. And then you've got these villains who are just coming in and uh, creating an underworld. And so these aliens are on Earth and then using these robots, etc., illegally, in terms of interstellar culture. So that was, like, a clever kind of thing. So it allowed us... To play with the characters in situations, and it's not just about driving the robots and fighting. What usually happens in mecha games, and this is particularly true in GURPS, is that the scale of the armor and the weapons is immense, unless you have some sort of plug in system that's just for mecha that works differently. So, GURPS doesn't. Uh, You're either rolling an impossible amount of dice or multiplying your result with a calculator. Uh, So, for example, if I go for the book here, a heavy missile launcher does. 8D times 50. Eight six-sided dice times 50. And then you subtract your defense rating, which is, for mech, it's something between 400 and 900 or so, you know. <laughs> so And consider that a tough human has a 1 in this rating. So probably the robots are looking for weak points, and that's why, the you know, the drag-out battles, and suddenly the astroaxe comes out, you know, the, the moment where you get out <laughs> the, your magic weapon at the end of a fight. That's because you've run down the you know the defense of the other robot but in any case what i remember from the fights here is that people would just like bring an insane number of dice and want to crash as many as possible on the table
1: yeah that was fun it was a ludicrous amount of damage that we could do you just seen how immense that was so we wanted to try out everything we had on the mech you know the turrets and everything and i i believe i had something like a hammer or a
2: Math is more fun when it has got when it has a lot of loud sounds associated to it, like hundreds yeah. of dice dropping on a table.
1: Just counting them was time-wasting-ish, but fun at the same time.
0: Yeah, but I don't think anyone rolled, what, 8D times 50. So nobody rolled 400 dice.
1: No, no, we couldn't.
0: <laughs> no, but even 8 dice... Is a lot of dice to to hear crash on the table and then multiply by 50, you know? So I think that's maybe part of the fun of playing superheroes or playing giant robots or giant monsters. You could do Godzilla or whatever. You know, it's like, let's, let's suddenly, let's just crash a lot of dice and let's count outrageous numbers. And it makes you feel like it's epic, even though... It's just as abstract as rolling, you know, one dice
2: (laughs) or whatever. Yes, but the die are simulating the sound of the big rocket hitting. You know what I mean? It's like an explosion of dice. And I'll get back to that
0: actually in my GM's tips at the end of the show. I'll be talking about dice some more because uh, you've just inspired me to. So (laughs) (laughs) let's talk about the character changes. Like, we know your character, like, your character is like a roguish. I'm talking with to put here, you know, he's the rogue. he was a gambler. he was sort of a race car driver. He's that charisma kind of character. Willie J, the middle brother, played by Beb, was more of an engineer. the I don't want to call him a loser, but at least a recluse and antisocial kind of character. And then Johnny, was Etienne's character, was the older brother, but also an outsider. He often had magical powers, if that was possible, or he grew up in, in another culture-type thing, but he was primarily a, uh, a noble character, law enforcement in his case. Let's go through them. Ace puts character... You kind of returned more to a jock-pilot format. That was closer to auto-duel, in a way.
2: Yeah, I think anime already has so many examples of characters that were like. What I imagined Ace to be from the start. The really handsome and cocky sociopaths. There are so many examples in every anime. The main character of Macross Plus was what I really based Ace for this shift specifically, uh, Isamu, I think is his name. I don't know, I haven't watched that in a long time, but uh, yeah, it was heavily based on him. Just like the show off fighter pilot. For those of you who don't know anime, think Tom Cruise in Top Gun like that's what I was going for um The Maverick The Maverick
0: yeah. yeah but he's called Ace it's already a sort of pilot name Yeah so he like I look at the sheet he had suddenly now he had coffee jitters he had acceleration tolerance and everything How did you choose your mech because the uh Stormhawk can also turn into a
2: Raptor and a, a plane so <laughs> I mean, you just answered your own question. <laughs> okay, I was I was was basing my character on a fighter pilot, so I went for the mech that was both a plane and a giant robot. But also, when we came to customize our mechs, for me it was super important. At that point, I was trying to think like I was trying to make my mech into a shift of what Ace was in Old West. So, like, in Old West, when it came to fighting, one of the things Ace was really known for was uh, having brass knuckles, for instance. He would always get into bar fights at poker games, right? So, I wanted my mech to not just have cool guns and rockets, but also be really good at hand-to-hand fighting. So, I customized and put uh, some landmines on the knuckles of the mech. So that whenever he would punch, it, w- it would like make an explosion, and I w- and I did that because I was thinking about the far west. So yeah, my mech was basically designed around the idea I wanted it to go really fast, like be a, a spaceship, like a really fast plane, basically, and um, be good at bar fights.
0: Okay, well, for Willie, likewise, return to his auto duel concept, a mechanic engineer, but this time we put him more into the research and design, which is one of the. Sections or departments at Project Damocles, which is part of the book, so it kind of made sense to put him there. And um, uh, the mech is bulkier, more industrial. This one's a Diamond X, you remember, and he turns into a van. So do you remember any of your thought process for choosing this one?
1: You remember when I talked about the Transformers earlier on? That's actually the, you know... Willie J is uh, the outcast, antisocial, not very welcome everywhere. And the idea of me, my Mac, transforming into a van, I had Rodimus Prime uh, in my mind. You know, the, the, the new chief that is not quite accepted by everyone. When he was um, not a Prime, he was not a van. You know, it was a van-ish. Practically a copy-paste of auto as role-playing because that was something I really liked and I thought it was very fitting, you know, as a player to just hop the ante on that version of Willie J.
0: And if I can speak for Etienne, Jonathan was, because of the law enforcement background, we gave him a sort of mobile assault suit. He couldn't transform. There was no transforming (laughs) in his case. But he has a more shamanic background in the Old West, etc. So that sort of inspired the religious-sounding Seraph as is mech, and it's got crosses on it, kind of thing. So it, it does look a little bit religious. Maybe that was the reason there.
2: Also, Evangelion was Etienne's favorite anime back then, I remember. So.
0: That's true. But there's a bit of Goldarrake in it, because he, he wielded a, a mean axe. So did Goldarrake. That was that was an extra thing here. You had to redesign your characters, but you also had to give them the mech suits that fit the characters and that sort of are a character You know, when you watch Pacific Rim or whatever, you know, it's like, you may remember some of the characters, but you probably remember the mechs more, or in association, you know. It was kind of the same here. What do you remember of the story and setting? What I can tell you quickly is that everyone is working for Unistar, which is the, that's what Project Democles. that's the organization of mech pilots, against Jebaroth gangsters. So that was like the big concept, but... What do you remember of the story?
1: At first change of scenery we were in Paris. That's the first thing that was the first time I believe you know despite Mars and the ice age where it was it's a gimme but we were still on earth now and we were not in paradise anymore. It was Paris. So we had like the Eiffel Tower uh, I believe we crashed it out the whole Environment was different. As for the story itself, uh, it was supposed to be a big milestone. We don't want to spoil what's going on with the uh, other shifts coming in, but we were attacking the, probably the main villain of the uh, of the whole game. We actually uh, land a killing blow.
2: Did you? <laughs> <laughs> did we? But, but did we? Yeah, I, that's what I remember too. That most of this shift was about um, trying to deal with developing the character relationships mostly between us and our adversaries because there was a lot of... I remember there was a lot of interaction between Ace and Oily Pete in this shift and that also got settled where uh, Ace ended up killing Oily Pete which was one of his enemies on his character sheet and we had to figure out what to do (laughs) with those points (laughs) afterwards. Yeah, I remember trying to resolve that really quickly Other than that, like I remember like being part of this military base. I remember like being a bit of a show off and like the bosses didn't really like me all that much. And I was like, oh, whatever, they'll get over it. They need me, you know, being really like a caricature of somebody incredibly cocky. So I remember that. I remember we also had a chase through Paris on motorbikes, which was uh, high adrenaline and a lot of fun. And I remember everything kind of like um, culminating to a huge mech fight at the end, which uh, probably caused a lot of innocent bystanders to die because we destroyed most of the city in the process. Paris
0: itself, that was like the, an early fight because there was the fight with the cavemen and suddenly you're in Paris and you're destroying the Eiffel Tower and Jeremiah Dark, which was like our big villain, seems to die. Like he's oh, been right. exposed. Oh, right. at
2: the start. That was I at the start. Right,
0: right. There is a big one at the end, but I think it was on the moon. So that, right. one, that one's fine. There's also, in my notes, it also says... There's a should be a fight in Dieppe which uh, which was sort of a joke for us because obviously it's it's on the northern coast of France. It's one of the places where you know during World War II that was important. but there is a town here called Dieppe from which put you are sort of from or lived. So Dieppe was in it, not our Dieppe but France's Dieppe. Just I don't remember what happened there or anything. <laughs> it's like I can't remember all the details either. What I remember is like Johnny was had been kidnapped by the aliens and it all resolves in a hotel somewhere. There's an explosion and and you
2: ride the door down the corridor.
1: Oh, yeah.
2: Stuff like that. Now
1: that you say it, wow, yeah.
2: That's around the epoch of us, like in all of our RPGs, we started really exploring the idea of going more and more cinematic in the way that we did things in our games.
0: Right, because even at that point, I don't even think I was asking for particularly difficult roles. I was just saying we didn't even have cinematic points. It was just we're in a cinematic universe. We're in an anime universe. We're doing the we're doing the speed lines when we're talking. You know, we're doing the special effects. Okay, what would happen in this moment? Yeah, I would serve out the explosion on the hotel room door, and it's like, well, roll your decks. You know, it was. <laughs> 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 it's like, well, this character would obviously, he lives in that universe, would be able to do that on a normal dexterity role, like there's no difficulty. Yeah. You know, so I was allowing this sort of stuff to happen because... Because it was cool. But you also got to remember that every time we shift, we're in a different world and the rules should be different. So why not have these really relaxed rules for an anime universe? Absolutely. It
2: fits the genre really, really well. And in fact, it would kind of be dumb to go against players wanting to do that, because then you'd just be destroying the mood of the genre itself.
0: Right, and it's a danger with GURPS, because GURPS is so grounded, and even though it does have cinematic rules, and it does like for Mecca, they give a lot of advice about relaxing those rules and making things you know more high-octane, because it fits that tone. GURPS allows you to change the tone, but the rules themselves, and I've always said this, rules tell you how to play. If the rules are very nitty-gritty, it's going to be a nitty-gritty game. If they're very grounded, it's going to be a grounded game. And you can change that, yes. You can fiddle around with it. But the game is telling you that that's not really the best way to play it. So when when you know GURPS a lot or any system a lot, you can fiddle with it all you want, which is, you know, I think we hit that point. I think we'd, mm-hmm. we'd hit the, the house ruling, let's do anything, uh, let's change the rules the way we like. We're probably there, you know. And to answer Babel's question or comment about why suddenly we're in Paris, where paradise, the location that I've always been, was in Wyoming normally. And then suddenly we're in France. Why? The reason why is because of Ice Age. Ice Age, that has to be France. Cavemen lived in France. Or at least that's what we sort of assumed it was. So when we transpose it to the future, we're still in France. And that's how I, I sort of I played with that, you know. So we weren't always in Wyoming, based on, but I did return there eventually. That was sort of my my reason. So, what do you do when you kill off both your arch enemies? <laughs> this well, is I, yeah, I thought
2: I thought well, I thought I found a loophole that was like, haha! I got points for taking an arch enemy, and now he's dead, and I have three points. That's what I thought was supposed to happen. But you, as uh, the wise game master that you are, <laughs> informed me that no, 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 it doesn't work that way. It could, but you'd have to buy it off. So uh, instead, but buying it off, what does it mean? It means all those points that I had in cool stuff that I really liked suddenly had to disappear. So I had to lose all the cool stuff or I just choose to get another arch enemy, which is what I went for because it's fun to have one, to be honest.
0: I mean, that has more story potential. Like, you can buy it off, you can pay the points, you can use, like, you can waste all your XP getting rid of a disadvantage-like enemy, but wouldn't it be more interesting if another enemy rose up from this and sort of started the tradition of Oily Pete having this really grimy family?
2: Well, brotherhood and family was a very important theme in Shift World, so I'm glad that uh, I replaced Oily Pete with his horrible cousin... (laughs) or father or brother depending on the shift.
0: Yeah, I don't know if his brother or cousin, but uh Greasy Gill replaced them. Yeah. And eventually Greasy Gill also dies. And uh and we'll bring in their dad.
1: Well, it was becoming a running gag though. How many branch of the family tree we must kill. We ended with uh,
0: the dad was dirty dick and then I was wondering if something happens to him, hmm, maybe maybe the mom. It would be an interesting, thing. but uh, we never got there, you know, the the campaign truly ended before that was needed. There was a whole thing here where there's a Oily Pete, who was your enemy, decides to frame you for events happening I mean, with the all the damage in Paris, etc. They're just like a reason to get you into trouble. Oily Pete manufactures some evidence. He gets found out. You race after him. He gets killed. You know, all of this. There is a story potential there. You're You're actually telling the end of that rivalry between those characters that had lasted since the very beginning, then somebody comes for revenge. That's not the last page of the story after all, you know? But there is a last page to this story, because in the wake of all this, we sort of found a reason for Willie J to leave.
1: Thinking about it now, it was uh, the way I I played it then paved the way to the way I played Willie J when I returned. Because some character traits I was portraying, and I, I haven't I had the chance to think about it, but it came up naturally when I was playing the last sessions with you guys. I remember my speech and I was telling the other characters that uh, I was tired. Uh, I needed like more calm and go back to my uh, my, my own way, my shack. And, and I had to leave just for my own mental health, some something like that. And, you know, continue the mission, but not with the brothers because it was too tough for me. So that's what I remember of that farewell speech. And it grew on Willie J and made him evolve in a way later in the sessions. That's what I can say about me leaving at that point of time.
0: We sent you to Canada in the yeah. story to work on, <laughs> on research and design, uh, but also keep you out of trouble. Because there was a the feeling of the NPCs, that the bosses, that you were getting into trouble because of Ace and maybe because Always. of Johnny you know so so we'll send you away out of that the sphere of influence of these bad boys and maybe you can actually work on on things put did this kind of kill the game
2: we lost a brother no for a while actually it created a really interesting dynamic between the characters of Ace and Johnny the two brothers that remained because although these things happen more in the next shift, and, and we'll talk about that when we get to that, but the relationship between Ace and Johnny was always really rocky because Ace felt that Johnny had never really been there for them, and Willie Jay and Ace kind of had to you know, live and figure things out on their own, and it was really hard, and they, they didn't really get a good life because of it, because nobody was there to take care of them. So there was always like these bad feelings towards Johnny on Ace's part, and, and Willie Jay leaving just made that even worse because well basically even though it was probably more ace's fault that willie ended up leaving he definitely put all of the blame on that on johnny and so it created a really intense bad relationship between ace and johnny that ended up causing a few fistfights i believe in even so willie J leaving definitely um created a a new interesting dynamic for a while at least but i think over time, not that the game died, we explained that the game mostly died because of availability, but over the long term, it definitely changed Ace a lot because that dynamic between Ace and Willy was such a strong one that Willy not being there anymore kind of like changed how I played Ace a lot, I think.
1: I think we can all agree to say that Mecca was the pivot. Mecca, for everything else that came up after that, was the pivot in the character building, in the storytelling, in the way we would approach any shift. This was the moment, the definite moment where, okay, we're on to something. But as I was going away, I had the feeling when I left that it was unfinished business.
0: You call it a pivot I call it the end of the first act. For me, the game, as it unfolded, the first act was discovering what shifting is, dis- exploring these three brothers, and going through all these different shifts. And when you leave, it becomes less about the family dynamic. And we've revealed a lot of things, and I've allowed the main villain to die, or seem to die. And he doesn't appear in the second act. And the second act is going to be with... Uh, at first, it's just put its end, and then we add another player... Uh, but you're not there, Beb. Nope. And we end that because we had to. You know, it doesn't really end on a pivot, I don't think. But it just... The, the second act is like this interim where the three brothers are not together and there are adventures, but they don't seem connected to, to the bigger plot necessarily. Some of them... Some of them not. And then the third act is what we played in the last year, and the resolution.
2: I think our third act experience is maybe transforming the way we see the second act because the third act was all about the relationship between Ace and Willy. And so it kind of makes it feel like Shift World this whole time was supposed to be about just that relationship. And therefore the second act, which did not have that relationship, makes it seem like it's not really Shift World. But if we had not lived through the third act I think we might have a different perception of the second act because second act was really about learning of the character of 12 and how he was connected to shifting. And it was really about learning a lot more about shifting, but we kind of forget that stuff now that we've played the third act, I feel.
0: Well, we'll talk about the second act eventually, obviously, but the second act for me is I recognize a mistake that I made and I sort of made it with Mecca and it continued on. I will not say any more than that, but in, in terms of how I focused the game, there was a big change there. I mean, you're all talking about how much this was a character-run game, and that is difficult to do, in theory, with mechs, because it is so crunchy, and there are so many... You can't do mecha without doing combat. It's just, you wouldn't have that, you know? I mean, unless you want to do that last episode of Evangelion where they're
2: just in a classroom playing the cello or something. So, <laughs> But maybe that's why what we mostly remember about mech in terms of relationship is what ended up happening with our enemies, right? Because those are resolved through combat.
0: And I will say that because we were already playing GURPS in a certain way, and GURPS was already pretty lethal in terms of combat, even though this was a lot more relaxed, you're more protected inside the robot. It's not like we started with a mech game that was overly militaristic, you know? Because other mech games, if, if I can run through a few of the famous ones, they're very focused on combat, much more than, than GURPS, you know? Just as a rule, when you look at this GURPS book, yes, there are sections on building your robots and robot combat, but it's a lot about getting the feel right, creating intrigue, Giving reason for your characters to do things outside the robot, so that it's not just about fights. But when you look at other games, and I can't say I, you know, I own some of these books. I have not necessarily played them. So if you had a different experience, please let me know. But Mech Warrior, for example, started as a role playing the role playing arm of the Battletech war game. So it's a war game first, but you're always playing military people who use these mechs in wars. So the focus is understandably on combat. You know, there are some more anime-flavored games like Mechton 2 uh, and Palladium's Robotech and Sentinels. Likewise, excruciatingly complex combat rules and little other focus. So GURPS, you can scale it, it can be excruciatingly complex, but it doesn't have to be. Whereas other games maybe, you know, they, they front load the combat. So the inclusion of a setting is an important advantage to GURPS Mecha because it creates all these other opportunities. I think that though I'm not a big fan of the hero system, there's a game called Robot Warriors that works with the hero system. It's probably the only other giant robot game that has as many role-playing opportunities, and maybe even a little more flavor than this, from what I hear, because I've never found a copy. So it's important for PCs to have something to do that's not just robot fighting. So it's, it's easy to forget. You think, okay, mecha, your anime, we're gonna this is what it's gonna be, but Don't forget to fill in those other moments before they jump into the machine.
1: There's one thing we haven't talked about yet, the soundtrack. The soundtrack, my favorite of them all. Oh, really? Oh, yeah, definitely. I actually uh, used my uh, team song for other stuff after that. Oh, wow. It was my referee, uh, my improv referee team, actually.
0: Well, there is a strong history of this music and improv because I wanted something that kicked ass. I don't know which comes first. Is it in France because the music is French, or is it French because we were in France? Either way, it's all French electrofusion music. You need at least one famous monument to be destroyed in the Eiffel Tower. kind of. There's a lot of reasons (laughs) to be in Paris, you know. But one of the things was the music. So there's a bit of mass hysteria. It's mostly Silmarils. These were artists that we knew because we'd brought many of them in the improv scene as team introduction music or referee introduction music. And it's a little bit like, if people don't know how we play improv, it's sort of a theater games thing. It's a little bit like wrestling in a way, you know, you get your introduction music that's supposed to be kick-ass or hot. So Mm -hmm. some of these songs, or at least these artists, did feature in... In our games. So, uh, and you've, you would have heard some of these music cues during the show. You know, I've used musical cues. Obviously you had your main theme, but you had like a transformation theme when a robot mm-hmm. transformed. Each of the heroes had their own music, etc, etc. So, all these songs are all french or mostly electrofusion they felt to me like a a modern anime fighting music type thing
1: i think mine i i felt more um binded to it because uh the song that you chose for willie j for this session was love your mom you know, the relationship and the, the, the fact that Willie was missing a lot of his mom and he was talking a lot about it, it felt just perfect into that anime high pitch, high velocity, high action theme that it was. And the song was literally a perfect fit.
2: Not to mention that of all the people I know in my whole life, you're probably the person who likes your mom jokes the most. <laughs> yeah,
1: that that that's the other part. Of
2: I love Mass Hysteria. I ever since you introduced it to me, I've been listen, I still listen to Mass Hysteria on my random playlists. So I was a big fan. Well, really, of every soundtrack that you come up with, because you really have a talent with picking stuff that really fits the theme of the shift. And uh, for me, Mecca. Definitely, as I've mentioned a few times already during this podcast, Mecca really needs to be high adrenaline for me. And all of these songs are like really upbeat. So, yeah, definitely a fan of the soundtrack as well.
0: And in the show notes, not only will I put character sheets and I was going to say album covers, I mean, the book cover, etc. But I will put a link to the soundtrack on YouTube. You can listen to the soundtrack and uh, I'll put the notes like what song goes with what. Maybe you'll make some discoveries, musical discoveries of your own. Finally, the last thing that I always bring up is lessons. Did we learn anything from this segment as players, as Game Masters in my case, or even in your case, you can Game Master if you want. But did we learn anything that we brought then to other
2: games? Yeah, for me, it was um, basically the idea of a session zero. Setting objectives and making it clear to everybody around the table what we're looking for before even going into the sessions. Because we all looked at examples of what we hoped this shift would look like in terms of which animes we want to be inspired by. And that was a big thing for me when Big Lesson Learned, the importance of session zero.
1: For me, I couldn't say lessons, but it was preparation since i knew i was going away it was uh, the first act of parting with a character and parting with a, a group of people that you really like and enjoy uh being with not only in game but outside the game because it was all of that it was very emotional for me this one so i wanted to make it you know the most out of it i believe it was a success because we went all out I believe as characters, as, as the way we played, the, the, the storytelling, the, the way, you know, like we mentioned, we went a little bit over the top and more cinematic and everything. So I, probably that's what I remember most of this session is that we totally came out of the shell just to make it count. You know, it was my last series for a while that I didn't know it was, but for me, it was the end. Uh, At that time, and I wanted to make the most of it, and uh, we actually totally did.
0: All right. Well, I can mention how you know how to handle massive weapons, or or how we freed ourselves up to do stunts and not even use cinematic points, but just make it cinematic. But I'll leave it on your words. I think you've wrapped it up nicely. How personal this game had become for you. So the lesson is, in a way, that RPGs can do that. You know, just like literature or movies, or if you're really invested in something. It can bring out actual emotions, actual connections. And I think this really did that
2: for both you guys, really.
1: For me, it was the end of a chapter. It was painful to leave.
2: Last words, put You haven't heard the last of me, Baka.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So that was GURPS Mecca. And I want to thank Ace, Willy, Put, Beb, however you want to call them. I'll let you go back to the hangar and i'll be back after the break with game master advice and your feedback on our previous episode
2: thanks boys you are receiving this transmission from the rod pod
1: upload pending <laughs> Stand by for soundtrack transfer. I am Maggie. And I am John. And we are trapped, hurtling through space in a ship shaped like Rodimus's head.
0: The ship, for reasons we haven't been able to determine, contains the entire run of the IDW Transformers Phase 2 comic. Which chronicle the events following the end of the war between the Autobots and Decepticons. so we figure we may as well read them all in order and report our findings to you. Stand by. Stand by.
2: Upload complete now.
0: The Rod Pod. Look for us at marriedwcomics.lipson.com. At iTunes, at Stitcher, or wherever good podcasts can be found.
1: So, uh... Till all or one.
0: Till all or one.
1: Till all one! If I were Dungeon Master, I'd have it made! What an interesting proposition. Very well, I shall give you all my power to use as you will.
0: Like anyone my age trying to justify his playing silly role-playing games... I sometimes pretentiously opine that narrativism in RPGs is superior to the simulationist approach. Now, If you're just coming into this already old debate, simulationism has its emphasis on rules creating an internally logical game world, while narrativism focuses on the needs of storytelling instead. In their extremes, the simulation RPG uses physics, formulas, and chaos math to recreate a world as logical and as random as our own, while the narration RPG does away with dice and rules altogether and lets a group of people tell a dramatically satisfying story. Most RPGs fall somewhere between the two. They are not simply games, nor simply role-playing. They must be a hybrid of the two. I would describe myself as primarily narrativist, My interest is in play-acting, creating events and characters on the fly, and placing each adventure in the context of a larger story. Nobody dies on my shift unless it's dramatically appropriate. And yet, no matter how evolved your sensibilities are, no matter how much you deride traditional RPGs as if they were offshoots of risk and monopoly, there's something intensely satisfying about throwing dice, isn't there? Games have tried to do away with dice, either through pure narrativism, like Amber Diceless, or with allegedly innovative alternatives like tokens, like the Marvel Universe RPG, or cards, like Marvel Saga, while other games have propped up the dice industry by requiring an obscene amount of dice. D&D is nothing when you consider Shadowrun's dice pools, for example. I've found that while narrativism is prized in my groups, so is dice rolling. Players get fidgety when they haven't thrown down in a while. Now, here's the secret function of dice. They represent the momentum of a story or scene. The way they bounce and roll on the table. their crashing noise. It's like thunder above the characters' heads. And you have to buy into that. When urgency is required, point to a player and forcefully say, Roll! It gets the juices flowing. Once everyone has mastered the basics of the rules, dice actions should move and create a rhythm you don't want to slow too much for so-called interpretation. And therein lies the narrativism. I do fudge dice rolls all the time, because it doesn't always matter what the dice say. Outcomes need to be dramatically appropriate. But the scene still needs momentum and that uncertainty that creates suspense. There are many ways to use dice. Dice crashing suddenly behind a GM screen, that creates paranoia. I use it all the time. And you know when players try to change their luck by abandoning badly performing dice? That gives them a narrativistic sense that their characters are trying to turn the tide. Asking for a role creates a sixth sense for a character who is no doubt more alert than their player. So whether we want to admit it or not, dice are very much part of the game. And this is an element that's largely missing from online games. So maybe you need to trust your players more and let them roll dice even though you don't see the result on the screen. You want to hear the crash of the dice. And whatever the outcome is, whatever the result, trust your players that they're telling the truth. Or maybe they're fudging just like you are. Now for a selection of your comments from the previous episode, where my guest Fred Melanson and I talked about Spelljammer the fantasy space opera setting for Dungeons and Dragons. Let's start with Brian Linton. He says, you've done it again. This time you didn't just coordinate your episode with a relevant RPG sale, which has happened before, but with a major announcement from Wizards of the Coast. It looks like Spelljammer will be coming to 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons later this year. I'm curious to see how they hopefully address some of the shortcomings of the 2nd edition product. And he also says, I enjoyed your GM tips on creating genre mashups. I was a fan of Wild Wild West as a kid and could see enjoying a good Western super spy mashup. Gene Hendricks says the one time I played Spelljammer was for a 24-hour role-playing session while I was at the University of Sheffield. We were playing evil characters, and I, being lawful, ended up as the captain. Eventually, we ended up on a huge ship with a large pirate crew and an entire deck that was part of a forest. We managed to get the forest by making a deal with a druid who, we told could come with and tend the woodland deck. And since we would be autonomous, uh, it would result in him becoming an arch druid. We might have been a bit loopy at the end. I like the, the crazier concepts. It says, Overall, being the Star Trek guy that I am, I always liked the idea of Spelljammer, but the execution left something to be desired. Not that it's being updated I might take a look again. Matt says, Absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much for covering this. I had no idea the concept even existed, as I only played D&D in the most basic sense. Uh, It seems like there was a lot of fun to be had out there in Wild Space. Hope you cover Ravencroft soon. I think you mean Ravenloft. And yes, I'm I'm sure we will. Um, Next up... And this little series is Planescape, my favorite of the settings, but I think Ravenloft would be the next one after. Uh, Mike Dynas says, another great episode, everyone. This was fascinating because I only knew of Spelljammer from DC Comics house ads. Uh, in fact, I never knew they were made into rulebooks. books. Do you know what came first, the rulebooks books or the comics? Or was it a combined media blitz? Uh, well, the game was first. The comics were the tie-in. They were put into production pretty quickly. Spelljammer number 1 had a cover date of September 1990, which would probably mean it was on the stands early summer of that year. The game itself uh, landed in stores at the end of November of 89. So there's like a six to eight month gap. Keith G. Baker who was the patron who asked for this episode and and got it. It says, always a good time on Let's Roll. This was no exception. I've been trying to get my DM to do a Spelljammer campaign, but we just finished a seafaring one where we were pirates. So it might be a little while before we get back on a boat. Thanks for the excellent work. And then put who was just on this episode says of the previous one, the concept of genre mashup is what hooked me into role playing for good. For anyone reading this, what would be your dream mashup to play? Mine I think would be some kind of historical supers like feudal Japan superheroes maybe. It's a question that's it's out there if anyone else wants to answer it, I will cater to that thought in the next episode's feedback section. <laughs> The Fire & Water Podcast Network has a patron page at patreon.com slash fwpodcast. If you like this content and want more like it, think about leaving a one-time or a monthly donation. Let me also remind you that you too can leave comments at fireandwaterpodcast.com. On the Fire & Water Facebook page, on Twitter, we are FW Podcast. So until that next episode, let's roll. Party!